Hello and welcome to this week's edition of the National Podcast, normally recorded in our studio at the Bishop Briggs Media Centre, currently recorded from our volunteers' homes. To keep in touch with us, use our social media platforms, Facebook, Instagram and Twitter, which are all at Q and Review. That's C-U-E-A-N-D-R-E-V-I-E-W. Or get in touch via information at qandreview.com. That's information at C-U-E-A-N-D-R-E-V-I-E-W.com. Please like and share our podcast and give us any constructive feedback. From the news section of The National, Friday the 2nd of July 2021. Indiana Jones rumoured to be filming in Glasgow, a city gets American makeover, by Gregor Young. Scotland's biggest city has been decked out with American flags for a new movie which is soon to begin filming. Workers erected flag balls with the American Stars and Stripes flag in the Merchant City area of Glasgow today, while similar banners appeared on St Vincent Street yesterday. It comes as the new Indiana Jones movie is rumoured to be filming in the city this month. Film crews were spotted capturing scenes for Indiana Jones 5 in the Borders and Highlands in June, with cameras following a high-speed motorbike chase through the valley in front of Bochayetov Moor. According to Glasgow Live, shooting is due to begin in Glasgow city centre this month. It's not known whether Harrison Ford will be on set. The legendary actor has been spotted in the north of England in recent weeks as filming took place there. Last month, Ford suffered a shoulder injury, prompting reports that shooting for the new film would be shut down for three months. But director James Mangold denied that was the case, telling a fan on Twitter, We're all good. Shooting. But thanks. A Disney spokesperson said production would be reconfigured as needed following Ford's accident. The film is scheduled to be released on July 29th next year. By Gregor Young. From the news section of the National, Friday the 2nd of July 2021. Michael Gove and Sarah Vine announced divorce after 20 years of marriage by Gregor Young. Senior Conservative Michael Gove and his journalist wife Sarah Vine are to split after almost 20 years of marriage, a joint spokesman for the couple said. The high-profile couple married in October 2001 but have decided to end the relationship and are in the process of finalising the divorce. The spokesman told separate and they're in the process of finalising their divorce. They continue to support their two children and they remain close friends. The family politely ask for privacy at this time and will not be providing any further comment. Sarah Vine is a columnist for the Daily Mail and she wrote last week in a piece about former Health Secretary Matt Hancock's resignation about how Westminster life can drive a wedge between partners. And talking about David Cameron, she said that he was unique among all the senior politicians she'd ever known in that he was absolutely brilliant at carving out time for his family. She then said it's very hard to do these high-level, high-pressure, high-stakes jobs unless you've someone prepared to take up the reins in every other department of your life. But the problem is that inevitably it sets you on different tracks. You become so entrenched in your respective roles, you begin to drift apart. Vine also wrote that climbing that far up Westminster's greasy pole changes a person. A friend of the couple said this is a difficult and sad decision for Michael and Sarah after 20 years of marriage. 
It's an entirely amicable separation. No one else is involved. They've drifted apart over the past couple of years, but they remain friends. Their absolute priority is the children. By Gregor Young. From the news section of The National, Friday the 2nd of July 2021. Police release new evidence in bid to solve the murder of Shona Stevens. By Gregor Young. Police have released images of a figurine found at the scene of a murder more than 26 years ago in a new effort to solve the crime. Shona Stevens, 31, was found with serious head injuries on a footpath in Irvine, North Ayrshire, on the afternoon of November 10th, 1994. She died in hospital days later. No one has been convicted over the killing of Stevens, who had a seven-year-old daughter at the time. Officers have now released an image of a figurine that was found at the scene during the initial forensic examination. The toy depicts an overweight man wearing a red waistcoat and blue tie with black shoes, but no trousers. Police said it could have come off a novelty keyring. Detective Inspector Friesen Normansell of Police Scotland's major investigations team said, we know the item didn't belong to Shona, and while we can't be sure of its origins, we believe it may hold significance in this case. On the day she died, Stevens had visited the co-op store in Bourtree Hill Shopping Centre at around 1pm. She was last seen alone at about 1.10pm on Towerlands Road. She was found injured around 200 yards from her home, within a wooded area, at around 1.20pm, near to the rear of Alder Green in the Bourtree Hill Park area. Information can be submitted through a telephone line. Police number is 01563 505 172. That's 01563 505 172. Or by calling Crime Stoppers on 0800 555 111. 0800 555 111. By Gregor Young. You're listening to The National as published on Friday the 2nd of July 2021. Comment. With the technology on hand, Covid communications just aren't good enough. By Shona Craven, columnist and community editor. Take care and be cautious, warned Nicola Sturgeon on Monday afternoon as Covid levels surged well above the previous record of 2,999 new cases in one day. She asked everybody across Scotland to keep doing all the things that help slow the spread, including staying outdoors as much as possible when mixing households. She might have been aiming to address everybody across Scotland, but I didn't get the message until Monday evening after I waved goodbye to visiting friends and checked the alerts on my phone. In the afternoon, when the First Minister was talking, I'd been shifting the furniture around, hoovering up rabbit fur and hanging up guest towels, not compulsively refreshing Twitter for the latest Covid case count. When I eventually watched the unscheduled statement, I was left none the wiser about whether my low-key, well-ventilated gathering would have been frowned upon. Was it more risky than a rowdy football fan zone? A sober dinner in a restaurant? Taking a bus? The First Minister has earned a lot of praise for her communications during the past 16 months. Many have told me that their older relatives never missed a daily briefing and felt reassured by the calm, consistent messaging. But when I've asked if they themselves have been religiously tuning in, they've said don't be daft. When I sheepishly admit I'm permanently confused about what's going on, they say they're pretty clueless too. 
Younger people have generally not been in a position to down tools, neglect kids or reschedule other responsibilities around an array of briefings, question sessions or special editions of news programmes. You might think, well, no problem, it's 2021 and most of them have smartphones in their pockets so they can catch up. But how? Search COVID on the BBC iPlayer and the top results aren't the latest briefings from UK political leaders, but four documentaries that are several months old. Search Nicola Sturgeon and the top hit is a session of First Minister's questions from January. Search COVID briefing and there are only two available broadcasts. A BBC News special from January featuring a Boris Johnson ramble and an episode of See Here, the magazine show for deaf people. Not for the first time I find myself asking, am I just being thick here? Let's try a different tack. Google Scottish Government level rules and the top result is a web page from May the 11th, although clicking through reveals the rules have been updated more recently. You then have choices. You can read through a 4,700 word document setting out what you can and can't do in your local authorities level, assuming you don't need to click on any of the many dozens of links for additional information. Or you can open a PDF which contains a line or two under each heading, i.e. indoor socialising, transport, childcare, for levels 0 to 4. At the start of the pandemic, there was a scramble to pull together policies and publicity to communicate about the drastic changes to our lives. But that was more than a year ago, and now the rules and guidance are more complex and varied than ever. Why do we still not have a user-friendly website that allows anyone in Scotland to access the specific information they need with a few clicks or taps? Developing one surely wouldn't be rocket science. Filling in basic details on such a site, postcode, occupation, household composition, would allow the user to home in on relevant rules and guidance without having to wade through irrelevant information. Creating a profile saving those details would make it even easier, but could be entirely optional. Someone without children doesn't need to know about childcare rules and soft play availability. Someone with no loved ones in a care home or hospital doesn't need to read through those restrictions either. A truly efficient website would ask the key questions, who are you, where are you and what do you want to do? Then provide clear, tailored answers about what's permitted and what precautions should be taken. While we shouldn't try to run before we can walk, couldn't such a website also send localised notifications when, for example, nurses were twiddling their thumbs at vaccination centres open for drop-ins? Heck, they could offer live updates about the length of queues for jabs and PCR tests. The technology exists to do all this. Sturgeon tweeted on Wednesday that people should test regularly with LFDs, an initialism that was new to me. Many folk don't know they can order home tests, let alone that they're expected to do so. Is this deliberate? Would demand exceed supply if everybody knew? Try to access them via NHS Inform and you risk falling down a rabbit hole of pointless questioning before being redirected to the UK government ordering site and answering the same questions again. Social media sites have figured out my exact taste in wallpaper and cardigans, so I'm sure it's not beyond the wit of programmers to target me with updates about when I can sit in a cafe or how many friends can come round. Yes, we all have a personal duty to stay informed, but it should not be such a struggle. This article was by Shona Craven. From the National, Friday the 2nd of July 2021, from the Sports Section, Andrew Postelagoglu, the latest Celtic manager, to believe he can turn Lee Griffiths around, but it's all up to him. 
by Graham McGarry, senior Celtic writer. It may be fair to say that the revelation of Celtic fans hoped for, with the arrival of Ange Postecoglou, hasn't quite off the, got off the ground just yet, despite the arrival of his first signing, Osasi Urugudia from Sheffield Wednesday yesterday. In fact, it was in news earlier on that Lee Griffiths had joined Tony Ralston in getting a 12-month contract extension and possibly Coglu's seeming willingness to retain the local knowledge provided by coaches John Kennedy and Gavin Strachan. That has so far given the impression of meet the new boss, same as the old boss. It is far too early to be panicking in that regard, with more new bodies sure to arrive, but both possibly Coglu and new chief executive could do with a statement signing or two to ease the minds of worried supporters. As for the matter at hand, on the face of it, it would appear a relatively sensible decision to retain the service of, of an experienced striker, perhaps the most natural finisher in the country, especially as Oson Edward looks likely to be sold on. There are significant caveats though. The fact that the news of the extension was met by consternation from many Celtic supporters when it was announced yesterday, is a sign of how far Griffith's star has fallen. Perhaps that is why he cryptically unfollowed all of Celtic's social media accounts on Wednesday, so he wouldn't have to read it. Griffiths has just turned 31, and due to a combination of personal problems out with his control, and a lack of professionalism entirely within his command, has not been able to nail down a place as a regular starter across a whole season since he smashed 40 goals in season 2015-16. There have been sporadic outbursts of form, most recently when paired with Edward under Neil Lennon, particularly in the period from the turn of the year two year seasons ago, when the pair dovetailed brilliantly to spearhead Celtic's charge towards the ninth title in a row. But relations between Griffiths and Lennon deteriorated to the point where the pair have had a public war of words over the striker's commitment and conditioning through the media over the past two weeks. The point of Lennon's disgruntlement came when Griffiths reported back off for duty after the first COVID-19 lockdown last year, wildly out of shape. When he was left behind to work on his fitness at Lennoxtown, as the rest of the squad headed to France for a pre-season tournament, it was widely thought then that the forward had finally reached last orders in the last chance saloon. And yet, Lennon came around, believing he could get Griffiths ship-shape and firing once more. It was about this time that Kat started referring to those who had near-death experiences having more lives than Griffiths. Griffiths argues that he did in fact reapply himself and was fit enough to be starting games. He remained a peripheral figure though, starting rarely and coming off the bench at other times to mixed effect. There were flashes of his finishing prowess here and there, but as question marks over his fitness remained, he couldn't get the regular game time required to stake a claim for Steve Clark's Scotland squad, missing out even on the expanded 26-man roster. Griffiths refused to accept that he had reached the end of the road though, with either club or country, reiterating his belief that he can still score goals at the highest level. This has rarely been in doubt, but it is hugely questionable whether he has the defensive capabilities or the level of work rate required to press high up the pitch in the manner which Postelicoglu orders his teams to. Whatever he has said to his new manager, Postelicoglu has been convinced enough of his good intentions to offer him the opportunity to sink or swim under his new regime.
His message, though, has very much been that he will no longer be afforded special treatment and that his future is now entirely in his own hands. He has no other choice but to spell out that clearly and publicly, with many fans taking his decision to retain Griffiths as a signal to the rest of the squad that a lack of professionalism will not only be tolerated, but rewarded. I'm really pleased to keep Lee with us for another season at least, Postley Coglu said yesterday. I have had very positive conversations with Lee and he clearly understands my expectations and more importantly the club's. It is perhaps his words from last week's press conference that Griffiths should heed most closely though. When active players would thrive under the punishing world-class sporting environment he would be creating at Celtic, Postley Coglu replied, not all. My experience tells me that in the environment I create, some thrive for sure, but others would really struggle, and you don't have a choice in who they're going to be. That's how I measure staff and players. I know people are keen to know what changes we're going to make, but I come from the perspective that we would rather make the decisions ourselves after we change the environment. There are decisions I have to take responsibility for, so I will make them. I think some of the players will definitely thrive in the environment. That will make decisions easy. One of his first decisions has been to hand Griffiths the chance to prove whether or not his doubters are right or wrong. Once and for all, it's up to him now. And that article was by Graeme McGarry. From the news section of The National, Monday the 5th of July 2021. Call for 100 Scots to sign a declaration to the United Nations by Martin Hannan. There has been much debate about how Scotland can become independent when the UK government refuses to allow a Section 30 referendum, which First Minister Nicola Sturgeon continues to press for, so far in vain. Now veteran independence campaigner Mike Fennick has taken the question directly to the United Nations and is calling on 100 Scots to sign a new declaration of Scottish sovereignty. The 100 is a clear reference to the Declaration of Our Broth of 1320 and it's called that while 100 Scots remain alive they will never consent to rule by the English. Fennick's reasoning is simple. He says more than 300 years ago a document was prepared in Edinburgh called the Treaty of Union And I didn't consent to it ever. I do not consent to it now. Years ago, another document was prepared called the Scotland Act. And in my view, it put Scotland in a prison. Did those who wrote the Declaration of Our Broth leave all sovereign Scots who are alive today a lesson? This initiative is a project to find the first 100 who will make their own declaration as a sovereign Scot to be lodged with the United Nations. Fennick says it's necessary to tell the nations of the world that Scotland wants independence and especially the right to self-determination, currently being denied by the UK government. He's already sent three letters to Antonio Guterres, the UN Secretary-General, pointing out that the matter of Scottish independence has geopolitical implications. He wrote there are five permanent members of the Security Council, of which one is the UK. There is widespread evidence, both past, current and to be anticipated, that the current UK government will resist and strongly oppose and reject any attempt to resolve the question of whether the sovereign people of Scotland can use normal democratic means of addressing the issue of Scotland regaining its independence, whether at elections or by way of referenda. 
He added, Earlier this year, the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons came into force at a time, in contrast, when the UK government announced its intention to increase its number of nuclear warheads. Scotland was chosen and remains the location for the naval base where such nuclear warheads are stationed. The declaration, which Fenwick has drafted for 100 Scots to sign, reads as follows. Exercising my claim of right as a sovereign Scot, I declare I do not consent to the terms of, nor the continuation of, the Treaty of Union established through the Acts of Union in 1707. Fenwick will be taking copies of the declaration to future pro-independence events. By Martin Hannan. From the news section of The National, Monday the 5th of July 2021. Jason Leach says current vaccine gap gives best protection by Richard Mason. Giving people first and second COVID vaccinations with an eight-week gap between them is the best way to offer maximum protection, Scotland's National Clinical Director has said. Professor Jason Leach said that clinical advice is very, very clear that giving people their doses at a shorter interval will not offer people enough protection. It comes after Scottish Labour leader Anna Sauer called for the gap between Jags to be half to four weeks to deal with the out-of-control spread of coronavirus. Many newspapers today are reporting that Scotland is now the Covid capital of Europe. Sarwar pointed to guidance from the Medicines and Healthcare Products Regulatory Agency, the MHRA, which suggests that vaccines can be effective when the two doses are administered just four weeks apart. And he said by cutting the waiting time between first and second doses, we can get people protected faster. He also said the speed of the vaccination rollout must now be increased amid record levels of new COVID-19 cases. Leach said that because you can only vaccinate with a second dose at eight weeks, the numbers being vaccinated at the moment depends on how many people were given the first doses eight weeks ago, but that will start to increase. He told BBC Good Morning Scotland that if you look back into the weeks we're just approaching eight weeks ago, the numbers go up. More first doses were given eight weeks ago, so the second dose numbers will now start to increase again. He said that we can't, for public health reasons, move that further forward than eight weeks because you get maximum protection. The compromise is we've moved from 12 to 8 from the Joint Committee helping us with making that decision. Asked whether giving people the second dose four weeks after the first would not work, he replied, the clinical advice is very, very clear. The clinical advice is do it at eight weeks and don't make it shorter because you won't protect people enough. Leach also said that while the MHRA said it was safe to give the vaccinations at three-week intervals, it's the Joint Committee on Vaccination and Immunisation, the JCVI, that decides what gap offers the best protection. Leach also said authorities were very hopeful that we're beginning to see stabilisation and that they're cautious but relatively optimistic that intensive care cases and mortality are not rising at previous rates because vaccination is protecting people. A spokesman for Health Secretary Humza Yusuf argued that an eight-week gap was optimal, according to advice from the JCVI, and that reducing that below eight weeks would compromise the effectiveness of the vaccine and how long the effects last. Last week saw the most coronavirus cases than at any point during the pandemic, with a peak of 4,484 new infections in Scotland recorded. With surging case numbers, the First Minister Nicholas Sturgeon has acknowledged that the test and protect contact tracing system is under pressure, but she insisted it's coping well. By Richard Mason.
from the news section of The National, Monday the 5th of July 2021. Roads closed and transport disrupted in Edinburgh as heavy rain batters Scotland, by Martin Hannan. Large parts of Scotland have been affected by heavy downpours of rain that forced the closure of roads and disrupted transport. A massive thunderstorm struck Edinburgh yesterday afternoon, with heavy rain causing flash floods that closed the city's bypass and flooded the newly opened St James Quarter. Basement flats in the new town and elsewhere in the city were badly hit. One local man told Edinburgh Live, I saw the water and my immediate thought was, I haven't seen this much in a long time. It flooded so quickly, it was only raining for five minutes. I was shocked to see so much water and it started seeping into cellar areas and flats below. It's devastating. There have been floods in Scotland before, but I've never seen anything like this before. The Evening News reported on the floods affecting the new £1 billion quarter. They said footage taken at the new shopping centre shows water leaking through the roof, flooding several floors below on Sunday afternoon when the city was in the grips of a thunderstorm. Staff at the centre can be seen mopping up pools of water inside several stores as shoppers were spotted gathering in the building's more sheltered areas. The Gaio shopping centre also flooded as rain leaked through the roof, causing pools of water to form indoors. The A720 bypass was particularly badly affected. Traffic Scotland warned just before 6pm that the road was closed in both directions. There was disruption to public transport with trains and Edinburgh trams both affected. Scott Rail reported flooding between Haymarket and Edinburgh Waverley. Trains between Helensburgh and Edinburgh were only running between Helensburgh and Bathgate. Queensferry Road, which is a major route in the city, was also closed when a car flipped onto its side during the storm. There are no reports of injuries, but the emergency services were in attendance. People took to social media to share images of the flooding in the capital. And one person tweeted, Scenes in Edinburgh, I've never seen rain as heavy. Princess Street, just about waitable. The new mall will be having its metal tested too. To the west, water was filmed gushing out of Asda Car Park in Livingston, while in Renfrewshire, whole streets were left underwater after heavy showers. The Met Office issued a yellow weather warning for the whole weekend, and yesterday some 14 areas across the country were hit with amber flood warnings. By Martin Hannan. This article is from The National, date 5th July 2021, from the Culture section. Fleabag-inspired gin to help Edinburgh Festival Fringe performers. By Craig Meehan. Phoebe Waller-Bridge has designed a flea bag inspired gin with profits from the bottles to go to the festival where she debuted the show. The actress, writer and producer has collaborated with Edinburgh Gin to produce a screen printed hand drawn design. It features a handwritten I love you from Phoebe's titular character and it'll pass from Andrew Scott's priest character their exchange from the closing scene of the BBC show. All profits from the bottles will go towards supporting artists to return to the Edinburgh Festival Fringe where Fleabag first debuted in 2013. Wallerbridge, who earlier this year was named the first president of the Edinburgh Festival Fringe Society, said, Gin and theatre are my two great loves. We wanted this bottle to capture a glimpse of Edinburgh in all her mystery and wonder through the eyes of Fleabag, who found her first home there. 
I hope every purchase inspires outrageous and creative conversations over ice while bringing the beloved Fringe Festival back to life. It's important to add that Andrew Scott hand-wrote a message on the bottle. If that isn't incentive enough to hunt one down and hold it against your cheek, I don't know what is. Only a few thousand of the £48 bottles will be available to buy. The first will go on sale on July 20th to those who sign up in advance at edinburghgin.com. It's hoped to raise £150,000 for the Fringe ahead of its 75th anniversary in 2022. Shona McCarthy, Edinburgh Festival Fringe Society Chief Executive, said The Fringe is known for being the greatest celebration of arts and culture on the planet and that's in no small part due to the brilliant artists that make it happen every year. Artists tell vital stories help us make sense of things and make Edinburgh an even more magical place to be in August. As we look to rebuild the fringe, it's essential that artists are supported to recover. This collaboration between the Fringe Society, Edinburgh Gin and Phoebe Waller-Bridge will be a much needed lifeline to so many fringe artists. It will enable them to get back to doing what they do best. That article was by Craig Meehan. From the news section of The National, Tuesday the 6th of July 2021. Douglas Ross backs Boris Johnson on ending COVID-19 rules in England by Laura Webster. Ministers in Scotland should remain committed to ending COVID-19 restrictions, just as Boris Johnson has pledged to do so, according to the Scottish Conservative leader. Last night, Boris Johnson announced nearly all coronavirus rules in England will be axed on July the 19th, despite rapidly increasing case numbers. Masks will become a personal choice, distancing measures will be abandoned, and limits on gatherings will come to an end. SAGE advisers had warned the UK government of the significant risk attached to the decision, as vaccination has reduced but not entirely broken the link between cases, hospitalisation and death. Johnson advised press conference viewers that cases are likely to reach 50,000 per day by the time July the 19th comes round. Scotland currently has the worst COVID-19 rates in Europe, with six health boards in the top 10 for case totals, according to the World Health Organisation. NHS Tayside, Lothian, Greater Glasgow and Clyde, Fife, Lanarkshire and Ayrshire are all in the top 10 worst hit list, along with areas of Northern England. According to National Clinical Director Jason Leach, the spike is partly due to the lack of natural immunity due to lower case numbers earlier in the pandemic. Despite Scotland recording its highest ever daily case totals multiple times last week, Douglas Ross said it's time to get back to normal. He said, I think it's time to start to get our lives back as much as possible. That's what we've told businesses and individuals and families here in Scotland. That's why we're working towards that 19th of July date to move to level zero, and obviously the 9th of August date to see the bulk of the restrictions removed here in Scotland, because we do need to get life back to normal. 
Meanwhile, Professor Sir Mark Walport, the UK government's former chief scientific advisor, said the lifting of COVID restrictions will make it even more favourable for the virus. He told Sky News, I don't think anyone would have imagined taking off all restrictions at a time when there are 25,000 infections a day, doubling about every nine days. The reason it's become possible for ministers to make this decision is because the vaccine programme has become so very successful and has weakened, but certainly not broken, the link between infection and the most serious consequence of disease. He said people are going to have to behave responsibly, and guidance really matters. By Laura Webster. From the news section of The National, Tuesday the 6th of July 2021. Home Office urged to allow Teens Grand to remain in the UK. By Richard Mason. The Home Office is being urged to do the right thing and grant the grandmother of an orphaned boy permanent leave to remain in the UK so she can continue to care for the youngster. Katino Bikadze, 61, is the kinship carer for 13-year-old grandson Jorge Kagbava, who was last month granted the right to remain in the country indefinitely, a decade after arriving in Scotland. Kakava, now 13, was just three when he fled to Scotland from Georgia with his mother, Sopio Bakadze, who died in 2018. But while the Home Office has now told the schoolboy he can stay in Glasgow permanently, his grandmother and guardian has only been given 30 months leave to remain and could still be forced to return to Georgia when that expires. Church of Scotland Minister Reverend Brian Casey has been lobbying on behalf of the family, insisting it would be a travesty if the grandmother and grandson were split up. He spoke out after SNP, Green, Labour and Lib Dem MSPs signed a motion at Holyrood congratulating him and the members of Springburn Parish Church in Glasgow for their efforts. The Reverend Casey said, It's outrageous that this grandmother, who's his guardian and sole carer, has only been given leave to remain for 30 months and will have to go through this whole protracted process again when he's 15 and still a minor. We will continue pressing the Home Office to do the right thing and grant her permanent leave to remain in the UK because it would be a travesty if they split up. The Holyrood motion, lodged by Glasgow Labour MSP Paul Sweeney, calls for the Home Office to extend permanent leave to remain Georgie's grandmother. Sweeney said, I'm delighted that after three years of tragedy and turmoil, Georgie now has the security of permanent leave to remain in Scotland and he can enjoy his teenage years like any other Scottish kid. As his only living relative and kinship carer, it's also now important that we continue to work with the Home Office to ensure that Katino is granted leave to remain on a permanent basis. So I will continue to stand ready to assist in this effort. A Home Office spokeswoman said, Following a compelling case, Mr Kakava has been granted settlement in the UK. His grandmother, Miss Bikazi, has been granted 30 months leave to remain on a route to settlement of which she applied. By Richard Mason. From the new section of the National, Tuesday the 6th of July 2021. MPs vote in favour of giving police more protest powers. By Richard Mason. An attempt to scrap stronger curbs on the right to protest has been rejected despite concerns of the impact on human rights from the new policing bill. The UK government has proposed a raft of changes to the justice system in the Police Crime Sentencing and Courts Bill. 
These include plans to give police in England and Wales more powers to impose conditions on non-violent protests judged to be too noisy and thereby causing intimidation or harassment or serious unease, alarm or distress to the public. Time and noise limits could be imposed as a result of the measures and those convicted could face a fine or jail. Several protests have been held in response to the measures with shouts of kill the bill heard. The Lib Dems failed in a bid to cut the clauses from the bill last night after their amendments were voted down, the first by 354 to 273. Describing the protest laws as dangerous and draconian, Lib Dem Home Affairs spokesperson Alistair Carmichael said the new laws undermine the proud British tradition of standing up for what we believe in and respecting others' rights to do the same. Labour's Shadow Home Office Minister Sarah Jones agreed the bill went too far in its reforms of the legislation. And she said the point of protest is to capture attention. So protests are noisy, sometimes they're annoying, but they're as fundamental to our democracy as our parliament. And the bill also received criticism from former Conservative Cabinet Minister David Davis, who pointed to a letter in the Times from a number of police chiefs airing their concerns. He said, and so it hasn't been the sort of lefty liberal legal fraternity that have been worried about this. But Home Office Minister Victoria Adkins said the bill does not stop the freedom to demonstrate. It balances that freedom against the rights and liberties of others. It is now possible for peers to make changes to the bill when it reaches the House of Lords for further scrutiny. Parliament's Joint Committee on Human Rights questioned the need for the changes, finding no evidence of a gap in the law needing filled. And there were already a range of powers to deal with noise that impacts on the rights and freedoms of others. The bill runs to almost 300 pages and contains laws covering a wide range of issues such as violence prevention, police driving standards and criminal damage to statues. Elsewhere, a Labour clause aiming to give shop workers more protection from violence and abuse was defeated by 350 votes to 233. Atkins said the government's actively considering such proposals if appropriate when the bill reaches the Lords. Tory MPs were among those calling on the government to give those working in shops greater protections. Former Tory Minister Robert Goodwill MP said shop workers have borne the brunt of much of the abuse regarding mask wearing and social distancing in store. The Police Crime Sentencing and Courts Bill has been given a third reading after MPs voted by 365 votes to 265 in favour of it. It will go to the House of Lords at a later date. By Richard Mason. From the National of Tuesday, the 6th of July 2021, from the comments section... Angela Merkel's legacy in Germany stands in stark contrast to Boris Johnson by Michael Fry. Since the turn of the millennium, Germany has had just a couple of chancellors, while the UK has gone through five prime ministers. Of the Brits, probably only Tony Blair will be much remembered in future, and then for throwing away all the advantages he accrued through huge electoral victories. Gordon Brown might, if he is lucky, be merely pitied for bungling a job he had longed for all his adult life. 
Moving on to the Tories, we found in David Cameron a basically shallow man presiding at a crucial point where the deep new challenges of the 21st century really started to kick in. He never learned to meet, let alone to master them. The UK had already had an Iron Lady in charge and Theresa May showed how hard it would be to discover another. And Boris Johnson? Well, up to now, Boris Johnson has been a laugh a minute, and we can only wonder if he will be able to keep it up. Of the Germans, Gerhard Schröder, voted out in 2005, has already been pretty much forgotten. But there is little doubt that his successor, Angela Merkel, will carry forward her reputation as one of the most powerful and influential leaders of our age. Once upon a time, it was British Prime Ministers that sat comfortably at the top tables, taking it for granted that other powers, though already grown greater in their historical role, would defer to the bearer of political wisdom from Westminster. Now nobody bothers about the UK. It is the Germans' somewhat ponderous sagacity that earns them global respect especially as they are well able to pay for getting where they want to be. Here is the kind of real power that for 16 years Merkel has so deftly exerted. She has done so without making enemies among her country's neighbours and allies. In fact, it has no enemies. There is in its behaviour nothing to remind anybody of the German past, and its partners of today prefer to cultivate German goodwill. We glimpse that in the way Merkel has been able to make ceremonies of her goodbyes. She has given a valedictory address to the Bundestag in Berlin, while in the wider world she has attended her last G7 summit in Cornwall and her final European Council meeting in Brussels. Yesterday, embarking on a fresh round of foreign farewells, she was in London again. Never one to waste a moment, she mixed business with pleasure. She had brisk talks at Checkers on the latest complications of Covid control. At least Johnson, in one of his occasional bouts of gallantry, will have helped to fix a treat she somehow mixed, missed in all these years of getting what she wanted. She had tea with the Queen at Windsor Castle. It would have been a relaxed occasion. Neither woman is much obsessed with herself, and both would have been happy to leave on one side for a while the burdens of buoying up their nations. The wonder about the Queen is that she has done it for so long without flagging. The wonder about Merkel is how she manages to drive awkward customers over long distances to where she wants them to be. Not a big problem for the British monarch, except inside the royal family. Merkel's own odyssey started long ago in the German Democratic Republic, when this daughter of a Lutheran minister cast aside as if they were gossamer, the penalties that life might have loaded on her. Girls and boys from clerical homes were normally banned from higher education or any sort of rewarding job. But 
Out of the blue, Merkel won a national prize for her command of the Russian language and a year at school in the Soviet Union. Today, her nearest rival in these accomplishments is Vladimir Putin, who learned German as a secret policeman in Dresden. She went on to study physics and chemistry at the prestigious University of Leipzig and was in the early stages of a conventional academic career by the time of the East German Revolution in 1989. She joined the democratic movement and as a bright, ambitious woman was found just right to pursue a political future by Christian Democrats from the West. They did not really know what they were letting themselves in for. It was at that time quite a male chauvinist party, usually led by Catholics who gave domineering leadership to conventional good causes. They indulged Merkel because they never thought she could outclass them. How wrong they were. Through a long series of wily manoeuvres, she was ready to take over the leadership for herself in 2005. She has since anchored her nation, but only after steering it through awkward manoeuvres. One of her purposes has been to eviscerate the old party system in the Bundestag. The Social Democrats have virtually ceased to be socialists. Instead, they accept the watered-down versions of their previous policies that she offers them. Similarly, she has turned her own party greener, closing down both nuclear reactors and coal mines so that the actual Green Party is left with not much to say either. She has still been far from a pushover on certain principles of her own. Her budgets are, as a rule, always balanced, if not in surplus, and she insists on fiscal purity from those lazier countries that seek rescues with German money. The euro has been important to her because, quite apart from fulfilling a European ambition, it helps to enforce the kind of discipline she likes. Yet, she has made German social security among the most generous in Europe. Fellow politicians did well not to underestimate her. She has always made sure to keep her show on the road and achieves this not by gesture politics, but by a painstakingly moderate and methodical approach to doing business. She is the polar opposite to Johnson, in other words, though not perhaps to the Queen. Merkel might regard these virtues as British, or perhaps here we had better say English ones but she has seldom come across them in the politicians from London she has encountered. Merkel and Johnson offer an intriguing example of the two nations' complex relationship. Two years ago, their governments had a brutal fallout when the Germans proposed that Northern Ireland, on leaving the EU, should retain all its existing regulations in a regime for itself. At this... The Brits exploded in fury. Yet two years later, that is just what we've got. The question figured again yesterday in Downing Street and probably will keep running as a German plan in British guise. But one result we can easily identify. 
The 16 years of Merkel have left Germany happier with its role in the world. The two years of Johnson have done the opposite for the UK. This article was by Michael Fry. From the National of Monday the 5th of July 2021, from the comment section, Michael Russell. Proof Boris Johnson wants to scrap Holyrood is in his actions. Dominic Cummings telling the world that Boris Johnson doesn't like devolution and would love to see it abolished isn't, in my definition of it anyway, news. Anyone who has watched Johnson over the last two years as Prime Minister displaying a clownish face to mask a ruthlessly ambitious politician can have been in no doubt that our country and the views of our people come very low on his list of priorities. Don't forget his earlier track record too. When he was editor of the increasingly right-wing anti-Scottish magazine The Spectator, he actually published a poem which called us a verminous race. As the Bible puts it, by their fruits shall ye know them. So, the idea that Johnson would respect the decision-making of Scots assembled in their own parliament, be relaxed about our right to decide on how we are governed, and just shrug when voters here reject his party at every national electoral contest, is as ludicrous as his whole fake ruffle-haired persona, behind which lurks a devious intelligence a breathtaking selfishness and an inability to tell the truth. In one sense, an open move by him to abolish the Scottish Parliament would bring to a welcome head the whole issue. It might, for example, force the Labour Party to confront the reality of the choice between no Scottish Parliament or a free and unfettered one. It would make the job and indeed political existence of the current crop of Scottish Tories completely impossible. Even Douglas Ross couldn't squirm his way out of that one, though of course he has hedged his bets by keeping a seat at Westminster. But of course Johnson, with the attention span of a goldfish and the courage to match, is not likely to go for the type of apocalyptic confrontation such a move would produce. Instead, what we will see is continued undermining of our institutions dressed up in all sorts of false language and pushed forward in a deceitful fashion by those around him who fawn on his wishes and depend on him for their preferment. Ciphers such as Alistair Jack, the Secretary of State against Scotland, and David Frost, a man who has never been elected to so much as the committee of a bowling club, but who now sits in the UK Cabinet. Devolution is an inherently unstable state because it can be diminished or reversed without in the end requiring the consent of the Scottish people. Some 22 years on from its establishment and 24 from its endorsement in the 1997 referendum, it is very clear that the only way to preserve democratic decision-making in Scotland is to move on to independence. 
that is also the only way to return to the prosperity and protection of full membership of the EU, which Scotland voted for five years ago, but which has been taken away from us along with our individual European citizenship. A bill for that referendum is ready to start its passage through the Scottish Parliament, and once it is possible and safe, to hold a proper, detailed, serious national debate on independence and seek the consent of the people to that step, then that will take place. That bill, published in draft form in March and contained as a binding commitment in the SNP manifesto, which was enthusiastically endorsed in the May Holyrood election, does not depend on the goodwill of Johnson to secure its passage at Holyrood, nor to be implemented thereafter. Nor does it need any help with the decisions on franchise or question from Michael Gove. All that is decided and in place. A definitive and decisive debate on Scotland's national future is coming anyway, and there is nothing Johnson can do to stop it, save try to use the courts to crush democracy, a move that never works for long. Evidence of ill will to Scotland and intentions and actions to frustrate and damage the normal operation of our legitimate institutions, not from the people of England but from their current leaders, will be germane to that debate. And what could be more destructive to the prospects of unionist success than a Prime Minister who constantly claims to be in support of devolution and Scotland, but who's revealed again and again in his words and deeds to be lying about that, just as he does about everything else. This article was by Michael Russell. Recorded from the National on the 6th of July 2021. From the Culture Section. How Scottish Theatre is Still Being Retrieved and Reinterpreted. By Alan Reich, Professor of Scottish Literature at Glasgow University. At moments of revolutionary upheaval, writers are quick to grasp how important live dramatic performances can be. Their work frequently proceeds and imagines what might follow. In Ireland, during the Easter Rising of 1916, Irish patriots occupied the Dublin Post Office, the most significant symbol for the exchange of information. This had been preceded by the foundation of the Abbey Theatre in 1903, itself a development of the Irish Literary Theatre, founded by W.B. Yeats, Lady Gregory and others in 1899. The theatre wasn't built with the idea of prefiguring bloody revolution opposing the British Empire, but in retrospect, questions arise. Much later, reflectively, Yeats, uh, Yeats asked himself rhetorically in his 1938 poem, The Man in the Echo, whether the sentiments he expressed in his play, Kathleen and Nee Holen, first performed in Dublin in 1902, inspired revolutionary action. Did that play of mine send out certain men the English shot? And that's the difference. What happened in the post office was not theatre. Its performers were not actors, playing their parts. Kathleen Nehulahan was a stage production and its performers were indeed playing. Yeats's perhaps guilt-burdened recognition of the possibility of fatal influence marks the distinction. The consequence of a play might be action. 
its possible influence should certainly be considered in a contemplative period of time. The results of action risk the destruction of that space of contemplation, which all art opens up. This is not to deny that sometimes action must be taken. Rather, it is to acknowledge a distance between theatricality and theatres. Over the last two weeks, we've looked at theatricality in Scottish church and political history. The disruption of the Kirk in 1843 and the Declaration of Our Broth in 1320 were dramatic events, but they were not plays. And had there been plays written and performed about those events since their occurrence, we might understand them better, and perhaps have a better idea about where we're going next. When I was last in a court of law, it was to take a group of language students to the public gallery to witness the proceedings. Everyone in front of us was very evidently acting, except the people who came to stand in the dock. For them, there was nothing at play. Their reputation, savings and even liberty were seriously at stake. Theatricality is found in social life in all sorts of ways, but the traditions of theatre as a genre of writing and live performance overlap with, but are different from these social instances. That's partly why a trial usually makes great drama in the theatre. Twelve Angry Men, 1954, by Reginald Rose, 1920 to 2002, can be utterly compelling on the stage, and directed by Sidney Lumet with Henry Fonda and a cast of serious actors, it made a powerful film in 1957. Not a courtroom drama, but a post-trial deliberation on the verdict to be delivered. The Greatness of the Caucasian Chalk Circle, 1944-1954, by Bertolt Brecht, 1898-1956, is partly due to its enactment of a trial in front of the actors and at the same time the audience in its concluding, concluding scene, where a child's life is at stake. The future is held in the balance. The neglected Scottish playwright C.P. Taylor, 1929-1981, in his play Good, 1981, made into a powerful film, 2008, charts the drift into fascism of a school teacher at the time of the rise of Nazism in Germany. As the story unfolds, it might be described as evidence in the case of a quiet man becoming inescapably trapped in a despicable political regime, compromising himself into an ultimate position of complicity with murderous, genocidal results. The audience is his judge. Both the historical political movement, the literary depth and the vitality and stage performativity of the plays of Yeats, J.M. Singe and Sean O'Casey have kept them in the repertoire of theatres and the libraries of readers of literature ever since their earliest productions, similarly those of Rose, Brecht and Taylor. Each playwright was committed to the art of writing as well as to the professional theatre performance. Their work was produced in the context of developing conventions in both state-subsidised and commercial theatres, including experimental drama on the one hand, musical hall and pantomime on the other. Their plays have lasted and earned international esteem. In Scotland, there is a broad sense that while there is a plenty theatrical heritage, there seems to be a comparative shortage of lastingly valuable Scottish plays. Scholarship and research since the 1990s has begun to alter this assumption. Historical questions remain of suppression and censorship associated with the Reformation, the removal of the court to London in 1603 and the Licensing Act of 1737. Broad judgment has been that despite figures such as Alan Ramsay, John Holm, Joanna Bailey and the vitality of folk, music hall and variety theatre, 
nothing much happens between Sir David Lindsay in the 16th century and the return of Scottish drama in the 20th century with J.M. Barry, James Brady and John McGrath. As an appraisal of the whole complex story, this is too simple. So much more has been discovered and made public through the last decades of the 20th and first decades of the 21st centuries that as a fresh overview is required. The Kirk often supported theatrical activity to some degree, shaping it to its own ends, but often encouraging the development of drama in schools. Folk plays flourished and ceremonial dramas had their place in religious contexts. As Ian Byrne notes in the Edinburgh Companion to Scottish Drama 2011, the performative theatrical culture of Scotland has seemed to lack playwriting stars to match Shakespeare, Congrave or Sheridan. And yet George Buchan's plays were mere models for Corneille and Rassen, and other Scot playwrights, minor as they may be, indicate a neglected theatrical culture in Scotland. Scottish playwriting had different roots and kinds of social prominence from that of England, and there was a lot of it. As Brown notes, for centuries, whether we think of folk drama, kirk drama, street drama, rural drama, or the theatrical drama of the urban middle and upper classes, whether in Gaelic, Scots, English, and even Latin, a wide range of theatrical forms was available. It is still being retrieved and reinterpreted. That article was by Alan Reich, Professor of Scottish Literature at Glasgow University. Recorded from the National on the 6th of July 2021, from the Culture section, Scenes from Egypt takes place across five Scots cities in an experimental play by Christine Patterson. A comic book writer moves through her city, becoming the vigilante character she's imagined. Sari Sharwari's heroine, Hannah, sees a goddess standing over skyscrapers as she attempts to right the wrongs of the male violence she sees in the public spaces of crawling metropolitan Cairo. Now Scottish audiences are to walk in the character's footsteps as Sharwari work premieres on the streets of five Scottish cities at once. The pavements of her adopted hometown Glasgow will play host to Nequabe Ninja next month, alongside those of Aberdeen, Dundee, Edinburgh and Inverness. Wearing headphones, audiences will listen to a pre-recorded audio version of the play while following a trail in which they'll encounter panels from the fictional comic Hannah's working on. This form is an experimental aimed at allowing performances to happen while Covid restrictions continue to keep audiences out of theatres, and the story is a response to the mob attacks on women, which happened in Egypt's Tahrir Square in the Arab Spring of 2011, when citizens forced Hosni Mubarak out of office after more than 40 years. Security forces and their agents were accused of weaponising sexual assault against women protesting, and reports subsequently emerged of similar attacks by groups of men at public events in the country. Nakwabi Ninja was in reaction to a very specific moment, says Sharari, who is in Scotland since 2014, but it's just n- never lost its timeliness. The play started as a monologue, and I've reworked it several times. Every time I sit down to do that, something else happens that is relevant too. That includes the global Me Too movement, which has swept across the arts, politics and more. Recent statistics show an increase in the murders of women in Scotland and in incidents of domestic violence. This week, Turkey withdrew from the Istanbul Convention, the gold standard in preventing violence against women and girls, while the UK has never ratified the treaty in the first place, despite MPs voting to force it to do so four years ago. And in England, an inquiry by MPs found the Met Police had violated the rights of women demonstrating at a London vigil for murdered Sarah Everett.
This year, the Scottish art sector has also been rocked by the case of rising star Kevin Guthrie, the Sunshine and Leaf actor, who was jailed for sexually assaulting an actress while she was vulnerable. And playwright David Gregg, artistic director of Edinburgh's Lyceum Theatre, said industry's long-term problem of sexual harassment, bullying and abuse had been accepted or overlooked. Attention on male violence towards women comes in waves, Sharari Abois says. People think the Me Too movement is done, but at the same time in the Scottish industry this year there has been a reckoning, she goes on, saying difficult and heartbreaking information has come to light. I thought when Me Too happened, everything in the film and TV and theatre industry would come out then, but it didn't. The universality of the themes in Nikwa Ninja have seen it performed in Uganda and South Africa, and it was due to make its full UK stage debut this year before Covid forced Shawari and director Catherine Evans to reimagine in a new sphere. Turning it into a walk piece, they say, allows it to connect explicitly to the questions the piece raises about women's safety in public spaces. I've been in countries across Europe and was groped there much more than I was touching Egypt, Shawari says. It's easy to say that happens over there. She's really excited about its staging, which will first happen first in London, where one of its scenes is set. That's due in no small part to the Egyptian composer and illustrator who have collaborated with her, and she wonders how audiences will respond. I hope the piece offers insight into what it's like to feel the constant threat of misogyny and male violence. I hope the piece offers space for anger, anger for those of us who live with that threat on a daily basis. I hope the piece offers the inspiration to take an active stand against misogyny and rape culture. It feels powerful to put on the play onto the streets, says Shawari. But there's a caveat. Audience members are encouraged not to attend alone. Theatre staff won't patrol with patrons who can explore the route at their own pace or even go off track, though if they do, they'll miss the associated artworks displayed at key points along the way. Wheelchair accessible routes will also be offered along with audio descriptions of the illustrations displayed. Though it connects very directly with her homeland, Nikwabi Ninja is also quite a local project, says Shorari, who says a sequel is possible. She initially spent time in Edinburgh before settling on the West Coast. It's quite international, but it's who I am as a Scottish writer. That article was by Kirstine Patterson. From the news section of The National, Wednesday the 7th of July 2021. Former Scottish Labour chief back second independence referendum by Gregor Young. Anas Sarwar is being urged by his party's former General Secretary to back another Scottish independence referendum. Michael Sharp, who left the role in December, warned that the current hierarchy's hardline stance on Indyref 2 is scuppering their chances of a revival. In a column for the Daily Record, the left-winger called on Sarwar's party to diverge from Keir Starmer's UK Labour. He wrote... With the Constitution still the prism through which Scottish politics is viewed, Scottish Labour's dismissive stance on self-determination cut the party off at the knees from voters long since switched to the SNP. Sharp, who said Scottish Labour still doesn't get devolution, urged the party to support a second referendum and campaign for a devo-max option on the ballot paper. He continued... Change must start by standing up to the UK party and unquestionably affirming that sovereignty lies with the Scottish people. That means fully embracing support for a third option on any Indie Ref 2 ballot, one that would give Scotland far more control over its own affairs economically, socially and internationally, 
whilst retaining UK redistribution and cooperation in vital areas. Separating Scottish Labour from the UK party is also crucial to the party's future success, he argued. He wrote, As recent polling suggests, Anna Sarwar must distance Scottish Labour from the Keir Starmer leadership, a leadership which has been increasingly directed by the likes of Peter Mandelson, and let Scottish Labour's voice be heard. The SNP told the record that a former Scottish Labour General Secretary coming out of favour of Indiref 2 is a significant intervention. They said no amount of Devo Max would protect Scotland from Brexit or the Tory power grab on Holyrood. Only independents can do that. And there's no mandate for a more powers option on the ballot paper. Labour have just 22 seats out of 129. The Lib Dems have only four. There is a rock-solid pro-independence, pro-referendum majority and the SNP won the election. A Scottish Labour spokesperson commented, We're in the third wave of this virus. At this crucial moment in our pandemic response, the Scottish Government has most control. So Scottish Labour's relentless focus continues to be coming through COVID and our national recovery. By Gregor Young. From The National, Wednesday the 7th of July 2021. Delayed discharges on Scots hospitals hit highest level since pandemic. By Gregor Young. Delayed discharges in Scottish hospitals are at the highest level since the pandemic struck. New NHS Scotland figures reveal. The number of days hospital beds were blocked by patients who were medically cleared to leave but had not been discharged reached 35,348 days in May. It's more than two-thirds higher than the same month last year, when 21,225 bed days were taken up by delayed discharges. And it's the highest since March 2020, when the first lockdown was imposed. The figures published by Public Health Scotland reveal there was an average of 1,140 beds occupied each day during April 2021 by patients who were clinically able to leave hospital. That's 153 more than the previous month. On the last Thursday of May, used as a census point to compare monthly statistics, there were 921 people delayed more than three days an increase of 65 on April. Of those, health and social care reasons caused 58% of the delays, patients' complex needs accounted for 38%, and patient and family-related reasons were responsible for 4%. By Gregor Young. From the news section of The National, Wednesday the 7th of July 2021. Humza Yusuf hits back as Tories attack him over Harry Potter world trip by Laura Webster. Scotland's Health Secretary has hit back at Tory critics after being accused of disappearing amid a spike in coronavirus cases. Humza Yusuf took his 12-year-old stepdaughter on the Warner Brothers studio tour where Harry Potter was made as a treat marking the end of the primary seven school year. The SNP MSP said he only took a few days off but Scottish Conservatives told the son Yusuf should return to the day job and said families affected by the third wave of COVID would be appalled. Stephen Kerr, the Scottish Tory chief whip, said families across Scotland who are feeling the effects of the third wave of COVID will be appalled that the SNP's health secretary thought it appropriate to take a trip down to London at this time. 
We're seeing thousands of cases a day in Scotland, with hundreds in hospital, and people still tragically losing their lives to the virus. Humza Yusuf should have reconsidered this trip at such a critical time in our fight against COVID and ensured that he was fully focused on the day job rather than diverting his attention towards all things Harry Potter related. Yusuf said the visit had been arranged months ago. He also accused care of hypocrisy as he bumped into a newly elected Tory MSP while at the Harry Potter studios. A spokesperson for Yusuf commented, Humza is taking a few days break with his family in the school holidays, and the visit to Harry Potter World was an end-of-term treat he'd promised. This is jaw-dropping hypocrisy from the Scottish Tories, whose own public health spokesperson, Sandesh Gulhain, was visiting Harry Potter World at the same time as Humza. The Tories' capacity for double standards appears limitless. The Health Secretary is still actively speaking to officials in government about the Covid situation. Scotland currently has some of the worst-hit areas of Europe in terms of COVID, with Tayside, Lothian, Greater Glasgow and Clyde, Fife and Lanarkshire all badly affected. Last week, three days saw record high case totals, but the numbers appear to have come down from the spike of around 4,000. Yesterday, 2,363 new cases were recorded, but test positivity remains high at 10.2%. Speaking yesterday following the publication of the figures, First Minister Nicola Sturgeon said, Daily fluctuations still likely, but reported Scottish cases have dropped compared to this time last week. Vital that everyone gets vaccine and that we all stay outdoors as much as possible and continue to follow advice on distancing, face masks, hygiene, etc. By Laura Webster. From the National of Wednesday the 7th of July 2021 from the comment section Scottish independence what would happen if there's a referendum court battle by Dr Nick McCarrow senior law lecturer at Glasgow Caledonian University If there is a legal battle between Holyrood and Westminster on the second independence referendum, we already have a general map, if not a specific blueprint, on what would happen. In part, last week's hearings in the Supreme Court on the United Nations Convention on the Rights of the Child, Incorporation Scotland Bill, also provide us with a dress rehearsal. The proposed law was passed by Holyrood in March. This provoked the UK government to ask the justices of the court to rule on whether the proposed legislation interfered with matters reserved to London under the Scotland Act 1998. The law which gave birth to our Parliament in its new incarnation over 20 years ago. This procedure of accessing the court to challenge Scottish legislation by the UK government is inbuilt into the devolution settlement, but prior to last week's actions had only ever been used once before over the protracted Brexit battles and the Scottish Parliament's Continuity Bill of 2018. This map tells us where the Indiref 2 bill is likely to end up, if Boris Johnson's government choose to invoke the same procedure. There are potential hurdles to it even making it that far. 
Notably, the new Lord Advocate would have to give her legal blessing on the proposal before it was entered into Parliament by the Scottish Government. James Wolfe, QC, now retired from the position, made no pronouncement at all on the prospects of the legality of a referendum bill when in office, despite it being a constant and high-profile issue in Scottish society. The new presiding officer, Alison Johnston, could also object if her office declares the idea to be out with the powers of the Parliament. Though the experience of the Brexit Continuity Bill, ruled to be ultra varies by the last presiding officer, shows this is no obstacle to the law being debated and voted on. However, the potential future battlefields have largely focused on the Supreme Court ruling on whether Holyrood has the power to pass a law on the independence referendum without a Section 30 order temporarily transferring the reserved power from Westminster to Edinburgh. That is the legal model that was used in 2014 and still the stated preferred option of Nicola Sturgeon's administration. There has never been a legal ruling on whether this is definitively the Section 30 route and the only one that can be used by Holyrood, so the case that an Indiref could be called by the Scottish Parliament itself is there to be argued. You could make a case to argue that one of the reasons that the UK has raised the other legal actions challenging Scottish legislation is to make the process more normal. So the propaganda line of an English-based court striking down our laws as an unprecedented and unusual act becomes blunted. The Welsh Parliament has dealt with several more legal challenges to its law than Holyrood. The Supreme Court President is also a Scots lawyer, Lord Reid, who gained a degree of publicity with his legal dissection of the Scottish Government's arguments on the Children's Rights Bill last week, a fact which one would assume would be highlighted by the UK Government if the Court ruled against a referendum bill. One other route of legal challenge that is often downplayed that need not involve the UK government at all. The bill could be passed by Holyrood and given royal assent by the Queen, become a full act of Parliament and then be challenged in the Scottish courts by any individual or campaigning group. This has been done several times in the last two decades, memorably with the Named Persons Law, which was set aside after being challenged by the Christian Institute. Although most other challenges to Scottish statute have been unsuccessful. Any organisation created by a legal document, like our Scottish Parliament, has limits to its power. In general, we give the power to the law courts to determine where we draw the line on powers. A devolved settlement, as currently exists, relies on limitations as power is shared and ultimately legally set by Westminster. That does not make the intervention of the courts, either the Supreme Court of London or the Scottish institutions, any less politically damaging, though. The UK government would be advised to tread 
carefully, even with a map, not an approach often adopted by Boris Johnson. This article was Dr Nick McCarroll, who is a senior lecturer in law at Glasgow Caledonian University. Recorded from the National on the 8th of July 2021, from the Culture section. How the release of Spice Girls Wannabe 25 years ago created five cultural icons, by Martin Hannan. What's the story? It was 25 years ago today that a complete and utter phenomenon exploded in the UK that would spread around the world and make five young women rich and famous beyond their wildest dreams. The official release of the single Wannabe on July 8, 1996, marked the astonishing arrival of the Spice Girls, who would go on to dominate the pop charts and earn themselves the status of cultural icons of the late 1990s. The song had actually been released in Japan, seen as a huge market for a girl group, on June 26th, and such a buzz about it that the record company Virgin Records sneaked it out in the first week of July to favoured radio stations ahead of the official release on Monday, July 8th. They had hoped to release it at the same time as their debut album Spice, later in 1996, but decided to go early to cash in on the feel-good factor engendered by that year's European football championships held in England. The exciting video, the catchy girl power lyrics and the fact they were not just another boring boy band won the Spice Girls' immediate fame that has lasted for 25 years. How did the Spice Girls come about? To read some accounts of their early history, you might think it was all happenstance and serendipitous luck that they started it all. But in fact, the Spice Girls had been preparing for their wannabe moment for two years. They were brought together by impresarios Bob and Chris Herbert of Heart Management following additions in early March 1994 to find five strikingly different girls as their adverts stated. Victoria Adams, Melanie Brown, Melanie Chisholm, Jerry Halliwell and Michelle Stevenson were chosen from 400 women to form the original lineup, and the band was to be called Touch. Stevenson soon dropped out and was replaced with Emma Bunton. The group began to live together in a house in Maidenhead, and at first they learned poppy songs, before getting train- training as professional songwriters. They fell out with heart management in March 1995, but soon signed to Absolute Producers and the 19 Entertainment Management Company of Simon Fuller of Pop Idol fame, who arranged a deal with Virgin Records. They were impressed enough to offer a five-album contract. By now calling themselves Spice after a song they'd written, Fuller took them to Los Angeles where they heard of the rapper Spice, and so the Spice Girls were born. Long months of songwriting, practicing and choreography, mostly by themselves, followed before their debut album began to be produced. What was Wannabe all about? Wannabe was one of the earliest tracks to be recorded, and it was all done in less than an hour, with the girls contributing last-minute improvised lyrics. The Spice Girls and their management and producers knew exactly what their target audience was. Girls and young women. They wanted a dance-pop feel to the song, which was written by the girls in collaboration with songwriters Matt Rowe and Richard Stannard. Here's an excerpt, and anyone above the age of, say, 20 or 25 will only have to read the lyrics for the catchy tune to kick in. Yo, I'll tell you what I want, what I really, really want. So tell me what you want, what you really, really want. I'll tell you what I want, what I really, really want. So tell me what you want, what you really, really want. I wanna ha, I wanna ha, I wanna ha, I wanna ha. 
I want a really, really, really want a zigga zigga. If you want my future, forget my past. If you want to get with me, better make it fast. Now don't go wasting my precious time. Get your act together. We could be just fine. If you want to be my lover, you got to get with my friends. Got to get with my friends. Make it last forever. Friendship never ends. If you want to be my lover, you have to got to give taking. It's too easy, but that's the way it is. What was the reaction? Extraordinary. The single went to number three within days and then rocketed to number one in the UK charts where it stayed for seven weeks. The Spice Girls were seen everywhere on television and they went on promotional tours to the Far East and Europe and the USA where Wannabe was released in January 1997, hitting the top of the American charts for four weeks. In all, it was a chart hit in 37 different countries and eventually sold nearly 2 million copies in the UK alone. Though some critics hated it, and there was a backlash against an all-girl group, the music industry and the public loved it, and Wannabe was named Single of the Year in the following year's Brit Awards. What happened after Wannabe? The idea of each Spice Girl having a nickname was actually post-Wannabe, and was dreamed up by the staff of Top of the Pops magazine. But posh, scary, sporty baby and ginger stuck, and the girls soon adopted their names. For a couple of years there were huge stars and Victoria Adams became even more famous when she started dating and eventually married England's biggest football name, David Beckham. Jerry Halliwell left in 1998, but the other four carried on, but eventually all pursued solo careers. There's not enough space to chronicle all their activities since the 1990s. Suffice to say they have had a mixed success in their careers but their two reunions in 2007 and 2019 were massively successful. Their relationships, marriages and personal lives generally have always been news. They're all now in their mid-40s, with Jerry Halliwell the oldest at 48. They'll always be the Spice Girls, and it all started with Wannabe. That article was by Martin Hannan, recorded from The National on the 8th of July 2021. From the Culture section, three Dundee students honoured at prestigious UK Design Awards by Laura Webster. Three soon-to-be graduates of a Scottish art school have won top prizes at a prestigious UK-wide design award ceremony. Nick Fitzpatrick, Finlay Grant and Ying Huang, all students at the University of Dundee's Duncan of Jordanstone College of Art and Design, won big in the New Designer Awards. New designers present work from 3,000 hand-picked design talents from across the UK celebrating fashion, textiles, jewellery, metalwork, glass, ceramics, crafts, furniture and more. Fitzpatrick, a product design student, took home the Lakeland Home Design Award, while Grant achieved the Goldsmiths Company Award for his jewellery and metalwork. Huang was awarded the Printed Textile Design Award. Fitzpatrick was praised for his inclusivity, inclusivity project, which consists of a trio of kitchen products to help elderly people and those with disabilities. He said the award has given him a massive confidence boost as he prepares for the next stage of his career. To have my name attached to a brand as prestigious as Lakeland is a huge honour for me, and I look forward to collaborating with the Lakeland design team in future, the student added. Grant's bold raisin jewellery, designed for his splash project, won his success. The collection of brooches and neck pieces is inspired by the pattern and distortion found in swimming pools. I've been thinking about going to the new designer since first year, Grant said. I'm very excited to be part of it and to further my skills through the goldsmith's company. Wang's project, Wandering Down the Garden Path, Joy of Print, 
draws from her experience walking in nature among botanical gardens and wild paths. The prints, made using traditional printing methods, incorporate tree trunks and flower patterns. I am interested in traditional printing methods because for me, it is a very tactile experience. I can feel their texture, weight and appreciate their quality, she said. I believe that to make the future a better place, it is important to reconnect to the past and to understand previous traditions. Winning has given me more confidence to step out of my comfort zone and seek more traditional craft opportunities. I will be continuing my traditional craft journey and I'm excited to start the Textiles MA course at Royal College of Art in September. The new designers event is usually held in London in person but took place online due to COVID-19 restrictions. A physical showcase is planned for 2022. That article was by Laura Webster. From the National, Thursday the 8th of July 2021, from the Sports Section. Aberdeen's J. Emmanuel Thomas racially abused with monkey emoji after comment on Rangers Defoe Instagram by Mark Hendry. Aberdeen striker J. Emmanuel Thomas was subjected to racial abuse after commenting on Rangers ace Jermaine Defoe's Instagram page. The Don's frontman took to social media to call out the yob for replying to a comment from J.E.T. with a monkey and banana emoji. Sharing a screenshot of himself writing Certi on Defoe's post after the Jers ace beamed about being named captain during a friendly against Partick Thistle, J.E.T. was fuming with the abuse. He said, There's always one. Have you got nothing better to do at 8.30am? Instagram have confirmed that they are investigating the comments while Aberdeen have been approached for comment. The brainless comment left by the person is not the first time in recent months where racism has reared its ugly head on social media. We told how, following Rangers' defeat to Slavia Prague, where Glenn Kamara was racially abused, that his teammate Kimar Roof was sent monkey emojis in the aftermath on Instagram. Former Celtic loanee Timothy Weir was also abused online with monkey emojis. That article was by Mark Hendry. From the National, 8th of July 2021, from the Sports Section. Erin Wallace can't help but improve learning from the best in teammates Laura Muir and Gemma Riki, by Susan Egelstaff. If Erin Wallace is ever searching for inspiration, she need not look any further than the lanes either side of her every day. The 21-year-old leads the pack of up-and-coming British female middle-distance runners and much of her improvement is a result of who she is chasing down at training every day. Wallace's regular training partners are Laura Muir and Gemma Riki, both of whom head to Tokyo later this month with a real chance of getting their hands on Olympic silverware. So it is perhaps no surprise that Wallace has managed to slice a whopping 10 seconds off her 1500 metres personal best in the last two years, as well as winning her first senior GB cap and coming second in the British Championships in recent weeks. Having training partners of the calibre of Muir and Riki is a privilege few young athletes are afforded, and Wallace admits that being part of such a high-achieving group makes it almost impossible not to reap the benefits. It's so good for me because I always have someone to chase. There's these amazing runners ahead of me, so it makes it easier to keep pushing. The sessions are so hard, but that's what you need to do, she says. 
Seeing them every day makes you realise they're not so different from you, they just work so hard. And for me, it's been such a big thing to see my progression. It makes it so much easier to train so hard when you see the benefits. Wallace may be starting to make her mark on the senior scene, but her immediate goal is this week's European Under-23 Championships. She is one of five Scots in the 54-strong GB team, and she has her sights set on grabbing a spot on the podium. Wallace travels to Tallinn, Estonia, ranked third in the European Under-23 rankings, and while she is reluctant to make any grand predictions, the fact she is in the form of her life, as well as favouring championship running, suggests she should be in for a good weekend. It would be great to get a medal, the Gifnock North athlete says. The 1500 metres is so unpredictable, though, so it often depends on how the race goes. I like tactical races, though, so if it pans out like that, it'll suit me. Wallace has long been touted as an athlete with considerable potential. Having begun her sporting career as a swimmer, she then broadened her horizons, competing in both running and triathlon throughout her teenage years. She achieved significant success in both, winning 1500 metres gold at the Commonwealth Youth Games in 2017, as well as World Junior Silver in triathlon the following year. Her success in triathlon brought her selection for Team Scotland at the 2018 Commonwealth Games, but she reached a point where she knew combining two ultra-demanding sports was not sustainable in the long term. So a decision was made, and for the past couple of years, Wallace has focused her efforts solely on the track, and she admits specialising in one discipline has brought many of benefits, though the residual benefits of her years in triathlon remain. I feel much more confident now I've specialised in athletics, she says. I do miss aspects of triathlon, but there's also a big part of me that doesn't miss it, especially the sheer volume of training we had to do. My triathlon training has definitely helped my athletics, though, the mental side of it particularly. I think back to the amount of training I did, and so now, if I'm feeling tired, I just tell myself to get on with it. Already Wallace, who is studying neuroscience at Glasgow University, has turned her attention to making a second Commonwealth Games appearance, this time in athletics. Birmingham 2022 is almost exactly one year from now, and while she has yet to achieve the qualifying standard, she is a mere 0.6 seconds short, which, considering the chunks she has scythed off her PB in recent years, is clearly well within her reach. It is the Olympic Games, however, Wallace is really focused on. A year ago, the suggestion she would be anywhere near making the team for Tokyo would have been preposterous, but in the end she ended up missing out by only a couple of seconds. Any tinge of disappointment at her near-miss, though, has been overshadowed by the many positives she can glean from getting within touching distance of the Olympics, and with Paris 2024 only three years away, Wallace knows she has no time to relax. She will spend this summer supporting her training partners of Muir and Riki as they pit their wits against the world's best, but hopes Wallace will be in the thick of things herself once the Paris Games roll round. Three years until Paris really doesn't seem like long at all, she says. And I feel that more than it being disappointing not making it to Tokyo, I have to take it as a huge positive I got anywhere near. It was only a week before the Olympic trials that anyone even mentioned the word Olympics to me, but before then it wasn't even in the picture. And it's not too long till the next Games, 
so I just want to keep progressing leading up to Paris. That article was by Susan Aiglestaff from The National, Thursday the 8th of July 2021, from the Sports section. ITV commentator Sam Matterface loses the plot during England versus Denmark by the Joker. Until very recently, Scotland's men's team have been conspicuous in their absence at major football tournaments. As well as causing untold amounts of heartache, the absence has made us accustomed to experiencing tournaments through the prism of English exceptionalism via the BBC and ITV. This exceptionalism reached its nadir last night as ITV's Sam Matterface drove viewers crazy with his increasingly unhinged rants about Gareth Southgate's side. Broadcast on STV, for those of us in Scotland, the night began with the usual bleary-eyed proclamations of destiny, as well as a blatant disregard for the opposition, neutral's favourite, Denmark. The jingoism came to a head in extra time. Co-commentator Lee Dixon did his best to match his colleague in the partisan stakes. Asked about England's controversial late penalty, awarded after Raheem Sterling appeared to go down suspiciously easy in the Denmark box, Dixon declared, I don't care. Top-notch analysis. But it was Matterface who stole the show. Continuing the theme of largely ignoring Denmark's presence at Wembley, it took the commentator a full 11 minutes to realise that the plucky underdogs were down to 10 men after Matthias Jensen hobbled off injured. Denmark were unable to replace him, having made all of their substitutions. When he eventually took his eyes off England long enough to notice, an increasingly delirious Matterface blurted out, The Danes have one less member of staff on the pitch. They're down to nine men, ten men. But worse was to come. Launching into a seamlessly endless monologue, the ITV commentator appeared to declare the pandemic was over. Ignoring the fact that a sizable chunk of the viewers weren't even in England, he said, If this comes off, you can do what you want tonight. You've had a terrible 16 months. Kids, you can stay up, don't you dare go to bed. The rest of you, call your boss, you ain't coming in in the morning. You deserve this. England deserves this. Feel it. Ride it. All that outpouring of emotion is just 50 seconds away. Just try to be safe and follow the rules. Otherwise, I'm going to be in one hell of a load of trouble. The speech was not well received on social media. BBC pundit and national columnist Michael Stewart replied, Does Sam Matterface think that no other nation has suffered from Covid? Sports broadcaster Tom English added, Sam Matterface, I have no words, and I really wish he hadn't either. Matt Greer wrote, Sam Matterface telling viewers in Scotland you deserve this is without doubt the worst moment of the last 18 months. Others warned that there was even more to come. Terrace TV's Robert Borthwick wrote, The worst thing about this isn't the dive, it isn't the impending England win and four more days of finding out about Luke Shaw's slippers. It's listening to Sam Matterface for another full match on Sunday. My word. During his increasingly manic monologue in Extra Time, Emma Kennedy quipped, Someone needs to escort Sam Matterface to a safe room. Guardian sports journalist Ewan Murray commented, Sam Matterface has lost the plot entirely. 
If this is what it's coming home means, it's all yours, England. This article was by The Joker. And that was this week's The National Podcast, formerly recorded in our studio at the Bishop Briggs Media Centre, currently recorded from our volunteers' homes with the publisher's kind permission. Thanks for listening.